All right, we're in the book of Colossians. If you want to open your Bibles there or navigate on your device, we're going to start a study through the New Testament letter Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, the book of Colossians. We're only going to get into verse 2, verses 1 and 2 this morning, so we're not going to get very far. But the topic really of the book is that in order to combat the lure of false teachers telling them that they had need of something more than Jesus, Paul reminds the believers in Colossae that they are in Christ and that his spirit is in them. And so the title of our message, Salvation is an In-In Situation. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we embark on uh, the study of a new book, I pray that we would uh, adjust our hearing to listen to what the Spirit has to say to this church. Uh, These letters were written to local churches, but they are applicable to every local church that ever has been since that time. It's a very modern epistle, Lord, in terms of the problem it's dealing with. And so just prepare our hearts to hear what the Spirit has to say. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. In the movie The Lion King, Simba, heir to the throne of his father, King Mufasa, flees from the Pride Lands when his father's murdered by Scar, Mufasa's brother and Simba's uncle. Deep in the safety of the jungle, Simba joins up with two characters, Timon and Pumbaa, whose philosophy of life is Hakuna Matata, no worries. Simba buys into this for many years, enjoying a life not only with no worries, but no responsibilities. Meanwhile, under the dictatorship of Scar, the Pride Lands fall into ruin, famine, and despair. One day, Rafiki, the wise baboon, tracks Simba down and offers to lead him to a place where he will meet his dead father. Intrigued, the young lion follows Rafiki through the twisted roots of ancient trees until he reaches a clearing. There in the clear night sky, Simba remembers his own roots. He has a moving vision of his father who laments, you have forgotten who you are and therefore you have forgotten me. Simba rediscovers who he is. He's Mufasa's boy. He's the son of the king. Christians sometimes forget who they are. Or at least we act as if we have forgotten. We lose our joy. We're not at peace. We try to live by rules rather than empowered by grace. The mostly Gentile believers in the first century church of Colossae were forgetting who they were and, for that matter, whose they were. A number of false teachings were challenging the supremacy and the simplicity of Jesus Christ in their lives and thus weakening their walks with the Lord. They needed to rediscover they were in Christ, who is preeminent and supreme over all creation and is the head of the church. So do we from time to time. So I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, rediscover who you are. Number two, rediscover whose you are. Let's take a look at who you are as this wonderful book begins. Identity theft, a real problem in today's world. If you're not vigilant, find yourself victimized. Spiritual identity theft assaults Christians. False teachings about Jesus Christ undermine your identity in Christ as a believer. Pretty soon you're struggling when you should be overcoming. The believers in Colossae were being victimized. In chapter 2, the Apostle Paul will urge them, let no one judge you, and then he will say, let no one cheat you out of your reward. And these false teachers were coming in with their false teachings and they were undermining uh, the simplicity of Jesus Christ. 
And we're going to discuss the particulars of their heresies when we get to chapter 2. But whether it's the 1st or the 21st century, no matter the particulars, every false teaching chips away the supremacy of Jesus Christ and the simplicity of your relationship with him. False teachings always accuse you of lacking something in your walk. You're a Christian, but there's something missing. The health and wealth heresy has been prevalent for many years. It just won't go away. They accuse you of missing out on perfect health, unlimited blessing, all because you lack faith. In essence, they promote faith in faith rather than faith in Jesus. And so while they talk about Jesus, what they really are talking about is faith. And so you need to have faith that you, for example, will be rich and never sick, not faith in Jesus that should you have a financial setback or an illness, uh, you have strength and grace to go through it. Uh, in their way of thinking, you should never go through anything like that because your faith uh, is enough to catapult you into a state of perfection. And so uh, they take Jesus really out of the equation, if you ask me. There's a Hebrew roots movement popular today, promotes the teaching that Christ's death on the cross did not really end the Mosaic Covenant, but instead it renewed it, it expanded it, and wrote it on the hearts of true followers. They teach that the understanding of the New Testament can only come from a Hebrew perspective and that the teachings of the Apostle Paul are not understood clearly or taught correctly by Christian pastors who are Gentiles. They are similar to the first century Judaizers who came in behind Paul and said, you guys are Christians, that's great, but you're not fully Christians until you keep the law of Moses. You need to be circumcised. There's some diets that you, you need to be on, uh, other rituals and feasts and, and somewhat. And again, since Jesus is the fulfillment of all those things, they're all fulfilled in him and we trust in him, they take him out of the equation and bring you back into ritual uh, religion. Then there's a, I can't say it's a movement, but one author calls it retro-Christianity, and it's become popular. It's the idea of retrieving ideas and practices from the Christian past and applying them to our contemporary church life. And while this isn't always a bad thing, it can be taken too far, suggesting that we're not worshiping God properly unless we do it the way the church fathers did in the second through fourth centuries. And so there are churches that are bringing back in these kind of uh, church trappings from those centuries and acting like that is the true path of worship and that we've become uh, too casual and too simplistic. What we'll learn in Colossians is that the only thing we are ever missing is our own identity as believers as it is undermined by these and other false teachings. So verses 1 and 2, they're a greeting from Paul to the Colossians, but they contain everything you need in order to rediscover who you are and eliminate the nagging doubts that you are somehow lacking some important practice. And really, all of us, no matter how mature we might think we are, uh, if somebody comes to us and says, hey, this thing, are you doing this? And here's some scripture that seems to verify that. You have an immediate feeling, of, maybe I'm missing something. Very few of us go around and say, no, I've got everything. I, I have no need of anything. We're, we're just a little bit concerned sometimes, and so it plays to that. And so Paul is uh, right from the beginning going to deal with that, and he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. 
Paul had never been to Colossae, but he had a lot to do with their being saved. While in Ephesus for three years, we're told in the book of Acts that the gospel Paul was preaching spread to all of Asia. And so travelers would come and they would hear the gospel and get saved, and then they would go back to wherever they were living. It's believed by scholars that one of Paul's converts, either Tychicus or Epaphras, who's also known as Epaphroditus, took the good news about salvation by grace through faith in Jesus to Colossae, and thus a church was founded there. And so Paul becomes their spiritual grandfather in that sense. And so the gospel he preached in Ephesus was taken by Epaphroditus down to Colossae, and as uh, converts uh, were made, they started meeting together and worshiping together, and this is the church at Colossae. I always like to hear why and how a church was founded. A church ought to be the supernatural working of the Lord. Doesn't that make sense? I mean, since we're born again uh, in a supernatural way, and, and, and a church should be born supernaturally uh, into a group of people. I'm not saying that you can't look at a map and say, we need a church here, or we need a church there, it's our goal to have a church in every city, that kind of thing, but even at that, there has to be a leading. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know that there has to be a Calvary Chapel in every city in America. Uh, maybe that's heresy to say that, but uh, it, it has to be God's leading. And I would rather hear stories of God's leading and, and just the unusual circumstances that God sets up to establish churches. Not every area needs new churches. Again, that sounds weird, but I strongly believe this. If you're in an area that has several good churches and they're just not quite exactly what you're used to, but they're teaching the word and there's no false teaching and there's fellowship and they're reaching out to their community, uh, then go there. You don't need to start a new church. There's, most new churches are started in heavily churched areas where all the churches are kind of vanilla. They, they, they all taste the same. They do it a little bit differently, but uh, not, not as much that you would notice. And so I think a church should have a, a story. Occasionally, something gets started from a split or a disagreement. That, to me, is kind of a sad foundation to build on. Now, God in his grace, he overcomes that, and many of those churches become living and vibrant fellowships. Uh, but that's kind of, you know, when you say, hey, how did you guys get started? How did the Lord lead you to start? Well, me and my pastor had an argument, and we decided not to reconcile, and so I took 20 people, and we started our own fellowship over here. Praise the Lord. No, you, I mean, come on. That's kind of weird. And so churches, they should have a story. For the most part, they do. And it's, uh, it's, it's wonderful to see how God works to minister to his people. Uh, Paul summarized his entire spiritual career when he said he was an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. The apostles were the guys Jesus tapped to establish the foundation of his church on the earth in the first century. That's one of them calling now. They were men who had seen the risen Christ and had been directly commissioned by him. Their ministries were authenticated by miracles and signs and wonders following their preaching of the word. We can make too much or too little of credentials in the church. The credentials we should be interested in are first and foremost a servant's heart, then faithfulness, then gifting by God. Credentials added by men 
can be valuable, but they must remain secondary. And so we sometimes make fun of uh, semin uh, seminary, we call it cemetery. Uh, and some seminaries are like a cemetery, but you know, we have no problem with higher education or uh, with people learning more or knowing more. That's a great thing. But we're not really interested in the credentials of men until we've seen the credentials of God. Uh, I want to see somebody that God has raised up to teach the Word of God who has a gift to teach it rather than somebody who has the intellectual ability to teach it. There's a big difference. With one, you're going to get the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And, and God is so interesting in that because sometimes the minister, the pastor, the teacher who's gifted will be talking about a subject and you get ministered to in a whole different way. I don't know how many times over the years people have come up to me and said, when you said this this morning, it blew my mind. And I'm thinking, well, I'm glad because I didn't say that. I don't know who, maybe somebody whispered it to you or maybe it's just the Holy Spirit, but I don't really care as long as you got ministered to as opposed to just a strictly intellectual approach. I'm not saying the Spirit can't use that because the Word is still there, but I think you see what I mean. We want those who are gifted in all areas, not just in teaching. Uh, and so the credentials we're looking for are a servant's... First of all, you have to be a Christian, obviously. Then a servant's heart uh, and uh, a gifting by God and faithful in your gifting. Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. When Paul was Saul, he was on his way to Damascus. He was going to arrest and otherwise assault Christians. He was a, a destroyer of Christians. He hated Christianity, and he was throwing him into prison and killing Christians. Jesus appeared to him, knocked him down, and blinded him. So you want to be slain in the spirit, this is, this is where you go. Uh, you know, that's a custom that a lot of people are into, Pentecostal custom, where uh, they sense the presence of the Holy Spirit by people falling down. People who fell down in Scripture, it was a lot more, um, a lot more serious than, than just a worship experience. And so Paul wasn't even a believer at the time. And he was, in a sense, knocked down by Jesus and blinded. And then he had a conversation with the Lord. He was saved in that amazing encounter. Then he was led by the hand into the city prayed for by Ananias. He received his sight as well as the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and he began his career as the great apostle Paul. Paul knew exactly who he was. He was Jesus Christ's apostle chosen to take the gospel to the Jew first and then the Gentiles. No identity crisis, no identity theft was troubling him. And he would, um, as you see in the book of Acts, he was the champion of uh, defending the simplicity of, in Christ that Gentiles had. When the Judaizers said, we want the Gentiles to keep these rules and regulations, said, I, Paul said, I will have none of that. We'll go to Jerusalem and we'll see what the church leaders there think, but I don't even care what they think because I know that the gospel I preach is the true gospel. And we're not going to put people back under that burden. And so Paul was a very confident individual, obviously a very humble individual at the same time. Sometimes we think you can't be confident in what you believe and have humility at the same time, but you can. And so we can and should be confident as we serve the Lord, not arrogant, but confident. I mean, are you 99% sure that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, or are you 100% sure? Because there's a lot of wiggle room in 1%. A quick story, I may have told you this before, but I was, uh, and you'll see how it ties in in a minute, but I was on a death notification one time, 
with a police officer. We had to go to a, uh, let a, a woman know that her teenage son, unfortunately, had died. And um, I was handling it, but sometimes people get nervous, and this young officer uh, wanted to chime in. And so at one point, the lady asked a question. That's not an unusual question. It's a normal question. She goes, are you sure it was my son? Because at the, la the last hope you have is that the notifier is making a mistake. And before I could say anything, the officer said, we are 99% sure. And then I had to say, no, no, we are 100% sure. It was a very awkward moment. Because 1%, man, that's everything to that lady. And, and so, you know, I understood he was nervous, and that's something that he said that, that he didn't think about. Uh, afterwards, he would. Uh, but 1%. So you and I, are you 100% sure that you are saved, that filled with the Spirit, and that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? Sure you are. Then be confident in it. Humble, not arrogant, but confident. Paul mentioned Timothy, our brother. He was another convert of Paul's, but one that also traveled with him from time to time. His missionary career started when Paul asked him as an adult to undergo the pain of physical circumcision. Paul would argue against circumcision for Gentiles. So was this a contradiction? Are there two gospels, one for Jews and one for Gentiles? I'm starting to see this online now uh, in some of these YouTube pastors where they're talking about the gospel that is specifically for the Jew and the gospel that's specifically for the Gentile. There aren't two gospels. Paul wanted to take Timothy with him to evangelize. But since Timothy was part Jew, the Jews would be offended if he wasn't circumcised. His uncircumcised condition would keep them out of synagogues where Paul liked to preach the one gospel. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, but he always went to the synagogue first in a town, and he would preach as long as they would let him about the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, and he would not be able to do that with Timothy if Timothy was not circumcised because he was half Jewish. And so it was strictly a move for evangelism. Uh, it, obviously, it has more uh, biblical ramifications than this, but there are cultures where uh, I remember when we were doing a lot, when I was doing a lot more missionary traveling, there were cultures uh, in the Middle East where they told us you have to shave your beard if you're going to be here for various reasons. And of course, Calvary pastors, you know, they're all wearing flip flops and uh, Hawaiian shirts and their beards are all over their head and stuff like that. I don't want to shave my beard. And then you think about it for five minutes and say, for the sake of the gospel, you know. I remember when we went to Japan, we had to wear suits and ties. Uh, and it was, it was just, it was cruel and unusual punishment. <laughs> but you had to do it or else, or else the, the Japanese people wouldn't, uh, wouldn't come. They wouldn't receive your ministry. It was a cultural thing. Of course, they told me I also had to eat sushi, but I didn't do that. I'm, I, I'm sorry. If I were in the deepest part of a country where making the first contact with a people group and they gave me a grub, <laughs> you know those wiggly ones like on Survivor with the dot eyes and they're just looking at you, like the old glow worm that we used to play with, I'd eat it. I then would vomit, but I would eat it. But if you're in Japan, that's a fairly modern country and they serve you raw fish and you just don't want to eat that because you don't want to get sick all over the table, I, I, don't, I think all bets are off. Give me some rice and I'll throw that stuff out. But anyway, 
So that's the idea. You, you, in order to bring the gospel, Paul said, hey, Timothy, I want you to come with me, but buddy, you're gonna have to be circumcised. And, uh, and so Timothy went with it, and that was the reason. And so what an amazing support Timothy was to Paul throughout his ministry. I remember uh, many, many years ago uh, when uh, a church was first starting that we had a little bit to do with out of town. The guy that was sort of being raised up to oversee it, at one point he said, hey, I don't want to do this anymore. And I said, why not? And he goes, well, last week we had a little potluck at my house and I realized that all the people were looking at my video collection and they were trying to see what videos I, as, you know, as the teacher of this fellowship that I, and I felt that I don't want my privacy violated like that, and so I don't want to do this anymore. And so uh, Timothy could have easily said, circumcision? Yeah, no. That's not necessary for my salvation, and I'm not doing it at this late stage. But he said, sure, to preach the gospel, to be welcomed into a synagogue where I can talk about Jesus Christ, let's go. Every small thing contributes to the larger work, and it's a great thing to be a support to ministry. Sometimes you just... Attending ministry is a support. I don't know if I've ever told you, but it's kind of nice when I show up and the sound guys are here in the worship team when people are actually here. And so regardless what other ministry you might have or not have, there is a ministry of presence. Just showing up to church is a great encouragement to those who are serving. Paul calls Timothy our brother. It's the beginning of his exhortation that they rediscover who they were. All of them, Paul, Timothy, the Colossians, were brothers in the Lord. The word means from the same womb. They were all born again of the Spirit of God when they received Jesus Christ. They're all from that same womb, as it were. If you were a Colossian, the mere mention of Paul and Timothy was enough to encourage you. Think of it. While you were yet a lost pagan idolater, God was at work on the road to Damascus saving a man who would be the apostle responsible for getting you the gospel. I mean, that's, a, that's an amazing connection looking backward. And that man would be the chief persecutor of the church. I mean, no one could have suggested that. And this is where you get into this idea of, of gifting and calling versus, uh, you know, what we want to do. I mean, our idea is that we want to reach the city of Colossae, and so let's send this guy to college and get him a seminary degree and send him out there. And you can, in your mind, say, yeah, that, that works. But you would never say... Let's find the chief persecutor of the church, knock him down on the road to Damascus, blow his mind, as it were, and he'll end up preaching the gospel in Ephesus, and then this other guy, Epaphroditus, will take it to Colossae. This is mind-blowing stuff. And secondly, he was already preparing Timothy with a godly upbringing to leave everything and travel with Paul. And so if you're a Colossian, you're remembering all this miraculous work of bringing you the gospel. Verse 2. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. Four things are told to you about your identity. First, you're a saint. Think of the word saint as a synonym for the word Christian. Certain churches and certain beliefs have hijacked that word to apply to only certain super spiritual folk, and that's too bad because it's not true at all. It's never been true, and it's not true. Every believer in Jesus Christ from the moment of his or her spiritual birth is a saint. It comes from a word that means sanctify. You are called by God through the gospel and you call upon the name of Jesus to save you and you are thus sanctified. You're set apart. It means you have an acceptable spiritual position before God. It has nothing to do with achieving a level of holiness on earth that is beyond that of others. The idea of a saint that we normally have is that you start 
in this immature state and if you get holy enough and you meet certain criteria that men have set, then we'll call you a saint. But the Bible says, no, you start as a saint because this is now your position in God through Jesus Christ. Yes, you should grow and mature in your Christian walk. If you're saved by grace, you'll be changed by grace. Spiritual growth is part of a larger doctrine of sanctification, as is your final glorification when you have a brand new body incapable of sin. But here we are talking about your standing, not your state. Your standing is sanctified, is the result of the work of Jesus on the cross. It is perfect, cannot improve or get any better. It is the same as every other believer, and it is totally based upon the grace of God and not on any work of yours. You have just as much access to God as every other believer. You don't need superior intellect or ability. You don't need any secret words or methods. No rituals or rites, diets or days can improve your access. You stand in a perfect relationship to God through Jesus. And not that I want to get off on a tangent, but sometimes people say, well, I pray through saints because they're closer to God. No, they're not. No, they're not, because every Christian is on the same footing, and every Christian is a saint. So you don't need Saint Joseph or Saint Christopher or Saint whoever to intercede for you. I mean, it's a, it's a bigger heresy than that, but just from this point of view, just realize, no, I'm on an equal footing with every other person who's ever been a believer, and even, even those who are in heaven. Do you really think that St. Joseph is closer to God in heaven than you are right now since God is omnipresent and you are his temple and you can talk to him anytime? And so the whole thing is flagrantly weird when you think about it. <laughs> like a flagrant foul, right? There's flagrant weirdness going on over here. <laughs> All right, anyway. Next, Paul described them and us as faithful brethren. Now, since Paul is talking about their identity and their standing, he doesn't mean to suggest that a saint must then be faithful in order to maintain his or her standing. He's still talking about belief, not behavior. And that's because this word faithful, one of its possible meanings, according to Thayer's Greek definitions, is one who trusts in God's promises. And so it's not talking about performance. It's talking about belief. The Greek scholar goes on to refine his statement saying, one who has been convinced that Jesus has been raised from the dead and has become convinced that Jesus is the Messiah and the author of salvation. So the sense I get from this is that since you already are convinced Jesus rose from the dead and are saved, you are capable of believing every other promise God has made you. It's a reminder that your life that began by grace through faith continues by grace through faith. These aren't rules, rites, and rituals and regulations that you must discover and then maintain in order to grow or to be truly spiritual. You're not left to yourself to develop this kind of faithfulness over time. In the book of Romans, Paul says, this is Romans 8, 11, since the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So the Holy Spirit indwells you. You can right now believe any and every promise in God's word. That's what it means to be faithful in this context. It is the reality, the realization that I can believe God's promises. You're a saint, one of the faithful brethren, and you are in Christ. Today we mostly call believers Christians or the more hip 
Christ followers. Paul's favorite label was to describe a believer as being in Christ. It means that what is true of Jesus is now true of you also. One YouTube pastor illustrated being in Christ using clear Tupperware containers. You need three of them that will fit within each other. One of the containers is you, another is God the Holy Spirit, the third one is Jesus. When you get saved, God the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you, so you put that container inside yours and put the lid on it. Simultaneously, you're described as being in Christ, so you put that container with the Holy Spirit in the one marked Jesus and put the lid on it. And so when God sees you, he sees you in Christ thanks to all that Jesus has done to save you. Since you're in Christ, you're a new creation, uh, creation, yeah, you're a new creation, Uh, you have salvation, you have acceptance, you have redemption, you have forgiveness of sin, you have an inheritance in heaven, you have every other thing promised to you by God and revealed in his word. When God sees you, he sees you in this relationship to his son and your savior. Fourthly, they were physically in Colossae. Their identity as believers would be played out on the streets and in the homes and in the marketplaces of that city, what we now call Turkey. Colossae was a city in decline. The main road had been rerouted to go through Laodicea. The city was still noted for producing its black wool made from chalk deposits in the area, but it wasn't the place to be anymore. People were leaving, not settling in California, I mean in Colossae. As we'll see at the end of the letter, Laodicea was the popular town in the region, and that's sad because of what we know about the spiritual condition of that town. Every city and town has its own personality and potential problems. So does every home and every workplace. Naming their physical location last reminded them that wherever they were, whether it was Colossae or Laodicea, who they were was sufficient for them. And we should have that sense that God has sovereignly placed us in the exact location in order to grow us and for us to glow with him in that dark place. God didn't put you where you are to beat you down, but to build you up. In addition to being in Christ and him being in you, in chapter 3, Paul claims your life is hidden with Christ in God. You could add a fourth Tupperware container, one you can't see through, label it God, and put the others in there depicting your safety and security. And so... Christ is in you, you are in Christ, and you are all hidden together in God. Rediscover who you are. You're the king's kid in the truest sense. And as you rediscover who you are, you simultaneously rediscover whose you are. These last few words of verse 2, which contain Paul's usual greeting, describe what belongs to you every day because you belong to God. He says in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is not talking about saving grace in this verse, but about sustaining grace. He identified them as being in Christ, that is, they are saved men and women, and now they have access to sustaining grace and peace from God. And by that, he means that God's promises are sufficient. You have grace every day for whatever situation you face. The grace we're talking about is described this way by J.I. Packer. He says, I am graven on the palms of his hands. I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me. He continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. And there is no moment when his eye is off of me or his attention distracted for me, and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. And so that's the kind of grace you have from God. You also have peace. 
The Bible uses the word in two ways. When saved, you have peace with God or before God. Before you are saved, you're at odds with God. Sin separates you from him. Being justified by faith, though, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. As a saved person, you can experience the peace of God for daily protection from the hostile pressures upon your mind and heart. Leon Morris says, peace is not simply the absence of strife, but the presence of positive blessings. Later in this letter, Paul will tell them, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. We'll see that word rule means to govern or to arbitrate. Arbitration occurs when you allow a third party to settle your dispute. When you are tempted to worry, doubt, fret, be frustrated, you can instead experience God's peace by looking to him as an arbitrator. He'll always tell you to trust and obey. Whose are you? God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit is present as well because we've seen that he indwells you. And so you are God's. Can anything separate you from his love? Paul didn't think so when he wrote to Rome. You're familiar with this long passage from Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There are a lot more potential pressures against you than you even realized. When life at home, at school, at work, and everywhere else seems a crisis and a challenge, don't forget the list that Paul gives here. You haven't been subject to tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword or death or life or angels or principalities, powers, things present, things to come, height, depth, any other created thing. I don't know if Paul would actually say to you, hey, that's nothing. You know, what you're going through is nothing. Uh, but he says, let me give you a list of some potential things. So when you're, when you're having trouble at work, when your boss doesn't like you, and that's the biggest trial you have. That's a real trial, don't get me wrong. I had bosses that didn't like me. I used to have some fun with it because I didn't really care if they liked me or not. But anyway, uh, I, I understand that. But Paul says there are other things that are, are really big out there as well. God wants to grow you through this situation so that you're ready for this other stuff when it comes. Because every day you're gonna face a minefield of trouble in your walk. But... Through it, God promises you sufficient grace and complete peace. Life might be exploding all around you, but he finds you a path through that field. What shall we say? Well, Simba said, Hakuna Matata. It sounds almost Christian, and there's, a, there's several books. They're kind of funny and fun at the same time uh, where people try and capitalize on things. And so there's some books. Where, one of them is about the Lion King where they're finding Jesus in the Lion King or finding Jesus in the Lord of the Rings. Maybe the Lord of the Rings, because at least Tolkien was a Christian, but I don't think you're gonna find Jesus in the Lion King, 
or in some of these other Disney movies, but some of the great themes are borrowed from the Bible, and that's where you find it. But Akuna Matata, it sounds biblical, but it's not. It's achieved by forgetting who you are. That was the whole idea. You're worry-free because you don't care that you're the son of the king. You don't have anything to do with anything. We receive this by remembering who and whose you are. You are in Christ, the Spirit is in you, and you are hidden with Christ in God. Let's pray.